Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. Hi, I'm Brian Brinkman. And I'm Tom Marshall. You are listening to what we believe will be episode 24 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself, and today, Tom Marshall, use uh, the music of Fish in an attempt to get the listener to listen to other non-jam bands. Because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. Sometimes the problem with Fish fans is they only listen to Fish. This can make you kind of myopic and makes you a little less fun at dinner parties. And then you'll find yourself doing a recording in Mercer County with one of Fish's lyricists. And you'll say, how did I get here? (laughs) Yes, so welcome to uh, this very special episode of Beyond the Pond. Tom, we are so excited to be recording with you. Thanks for giving us so much time. Absolutely. And I'm definitely boring at at dinner parties when people ask me, you know, what, what music have you seen lately? And it's like always, well... Fish. <laughs> 17 days this summer was spent on fish at Madison Square Garden. No one wants to hear that unless they're a fish fan. <laughs> they, they played okay at Madison Square Oh, yeah, Garden. they did. It was all right. They did okay. <laughs> that, that bad. I had a good time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Do you know anyone that didn't, honestly? Um, no. 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 And the band themselves, oh, my God, they were just beaming. It was... I expect it to be great. I don't think I expect it to be that great. The fact yeah. that they exceeded my expectations. Yeah. Was, when they announced yeah. it back in February and March, I remember it being like, okay, 13 shows at the Garden. This can't go bad at all. I didn't think it was going to go as, and as I, high energy as it I was. I agree. And I don't think anyone really realistically thought that they would do the no repeats thing. No. Do you? It was floated about a it was week floated. or so before it, was floated. it started. But that to me was like... You know, they'll do okay, but, you know, uh, they won't do Tweezer twice, but they'll do some songs twice. Right. I was sure of it. Not only did we not, I not think they would do the no repeats, but we had an episode where I think I actually bet Brian a six-pack that they wouldn't do the the, the no repeats, and I still have to make good on that. (laughs) Maybe today uh, today is a good time. So I thought after the Dayton show that they would. I thought they were constructing set lists in a way that would make it... Uh-huh. logical for them to do it that they were like 18 song set lists that were very jam heavy filled with very unique songs but even that said i had no idea that that meant that they were going to play 1999 again all oh, right or that they were going to play you sexy thing when i saw them <laughs> or that i'd see a colonel forbins and a harpoon in the same show or like, the type 2 sample in a jar or that <laughs> yeah jam filled that took a left turn immediately right <laughs> yeah, no, seemed- left Left. Sorry, sorry. It's very left. <laughs> right, it seemed like the first weekend, I thought those first three shows were excellent B-plus, A-minus fish shows. And then when you got to Tuesday, and they open with Sample in a Jar, and then they start jamming it out, and you see Trey with the big sheet and grin, you think to yourself, okay, this is the direction the Baker's Dozen is going. <laughs> this is when the Baker's Dozen is becoming the Baker's Dozen. And they kept delivering, which was great. Great thing today with uh, Tom Marshall joining us. We're going to kind of take a step back from uh, really talking about some of the fish songs that Tom's written, and we want to talk about from the genesis of fishes uh, or from, of Tom's uh, songwriting to the overall revelation of where these songs ended up, what the creative process is like, what Tom's influences are, as well as um, some of the kind of hidden gems beyond, behind some of the songs that uh, are some of our favorite Fish songs. In addition, we're also going to find out what Tom is listening to when he's not listening to Fish. Because although, you know, certainly he has written a whole bunch of lyrics we want to kind of delve into, you know, what he was listening to growing up, what he was listening to during the hiatus, what he listens to now. Because, you know, certainly there is a whole wealth of other of like other bands out there and kind of the purpose of us starting the podcast in the first place was to use fish to get you out there to the other band so i'm definitely looking forward to delving deeper there great i'm, I'm happy to do it and uh don't think the from genesis to revelation 
subtlety was lost on me, <clears throat> the, being the first and the last books of the Bible. Absolutely. But also from Genesis to Revelation is the name of the first Genesis album. And Genesis <laughs> was one of my foundational pillars of music. So I think we have some themes that we're going to explore in this episode. How did Trey and Tom become connected through music? What did Tom listen to during the hiatus and on musical accidents and all my friends? But first, I think we just want to kick it off with somewhat of a like general interview. I just want to start out by asking Tom, be very vague. What's your writing process like? Um, well, I'm almost 100% collaborative when it comes to writing. I mean, I will sit down on the piano and come up with something. But for it to be realized as anything um, called a song, I usually prefer another person to be there. Mm-hmm. And that person, you know, 80% of the time is Trey. Um, I've had some writing success with other people, uh, namely Anthony Kryzon, who used to be in The Spin Doctors, who was in my band Amphibian, and then my pal Chris Metaxas, uh, written, I think, with those two guys, probably 100 songs as well. Um, but Trey is the far majority with maybe 300 songs. And so uh, that's music songwriting process. Lyric writing is strictly uh, alone unless I'm doing a back and forth with my, with my man, Scott Herman. Okay. Scott is uh, credited with maybe, uh, I think, somewhere between 18 and 25 fish songs, including Cavern and okay. other stuff. Sense and Subtle Sounds, right? Sense and Subtle Sounds, yeah. Um, uh, what's... Uh, Meat stick. Meat stick is my favorite uh, set of his lyrics. Um, I and Trey, Trey and I only wrote the chorus of that. He did all the verses. Okay. You know, the pain I can't identify is like one of my favorite fish lines of all time. And so when you and Scott are writing in terms of a lyrical standpoint, are you guys just sitting down going back and forth, shooting ideas to each other? It, 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 it happened because of necessity in a way and, and boredom at AT&T where we met, okay. where we were sending emails back and forth. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I remember uh, you talking about this on an Under the Scales. There's an Under the Scales that you talks about it. Yeah, write a line to each other and someone would add another line exactly. to it. Exactly. Yeah, Cavern was done like that. Fantastic. Was Anthony Kreisner, was he one of the replacements of Eric Shankman on guitar? Correct. Yeah, okay. so he was the second spin Doctors guitars. Right. All the spin doctors, I mean, they're like Princeton dudes, right? Chris Barron at least was. Chris Barron certainly was. I don't know, honestly, uh, the other guys. Um, But then simultaneously, um, and I would answer yes if you had asked that question about Blues Traveler. Right. They're all high school, Princeton high school dudes. And so Fish, Blues Traveler, and Spin Doctors kind of at the same time formed right out of this little nexus that we're in right now. Maybe the Rhombus had something to do with that. In terms of lyrics, you know, you, you had said it's a very isolated experience unless you are uh, writing in collaboration. When you write lyrics, do you ever have specific music in mind? And um, kind of a follow-up, are you ever surprised by the music that's written to a particular set of lyrics if you didn't, if you were just writing down lyrics uh, kind of as poetry? Um, the That question is similar to one that I've, I've been asked, you know, I've been asked in the past, and and the song that I I answer to that question is "Sparkle" because when I wrote it, it was coming from a very very dark place, and I remember when Trey read it, and he was even like, "Dude, I don't even really want to, I don't want to go there," kind of thing, right. and so he went home and put it on the happiest music possible. Right. Right. So it's like dark, dark, bad feeling lyrics. Uh, superimposed on a happy song and to me it was like it was kind of brilliant it was a great idea and that's uh you know that's something that wouldn't have happened without collaboration totally the pressure builds you buy a gift you're hoping that your dread will lift it glitters on her like a glass you shut her eyes it comes to pass apologize to loosen lil with Ed, a drive with Jill. Your friends can find you in their worlds. One by one, a string of pearls. Confused, you say. As far as like, you know, surprise that in that era, like the Lawn Boy, I guess, era or uh, Rift era, um, a lot of the stuff that came out as fish songs would be my supplying Trey lyrics and not being involved with the 
the actual song creation process. Right. And so um, in terms of being surprised by music, um, I, you know, I send him this poem, Lawn Boy. And I had no idea what to expect. And having it come back as kind of like a lounge song was was wonderful. It was amazing. So, yeah, complete surprise. Same thing um, in a way. Uh, I mean, not so much in a way with Bouncing. I was definitely um, able to tell Trey, you know, this one needs an upbeat, bouncing kind of mood. And, right. and sure enough, he, he nailed it, yeah. you know, exactly what I was expecting. So that sort of answers, that runs the gamut. Surprise, no surprise, and then, you know, unusual were you Reaction. ever intending the lyrics of Lawn Boy to supply a 30-minute jam? <laughs> <laughs> no, that one, definitely not. And uh, not until this uh, last year Absolutely. would I ever think that they had jammed out Lawn Boy that far. <laughs> it's awesome. after that show I was walking to see a concert at uh, Terminal 5 in the like, west side of Manhattan and I saw a guy wearing a shirt that said this is Long Boy so I went up to him and I said is this still Long Boy? Figured he would give me like a big hug and totally get in on the joke and he looked at me crazy and ran away <laughs> thought okay you just probably thought I was a crazy person no I was I'm a fan. <laughs> Moments where you think that we're everywhere and then you realize we're still so isolated. And <laughs> right. <laughs> we are everywhere, though. We are. We are everywhere. Shocking places. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite fish song that you did not write the lyrics to? Oh, definitely. Um, if I'm outdoors, like at a festival or Dick's environment or anything outdoors... For whatever reason, punch you in the eye is just what I'm craving from the bottom of my soul. Yeah. And I think it's like the, you know, the combination of how into it the band can get during those, like, to me, it has like three introductions, that song. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just builds and builds and builds, and you feel it in the crowd. And outdoors has just been a few of my favorites. And having the crowd participation part with the hay. Something about that outdoors is my favorite song. Indoors, also same era, I think, is uh, Sloth. Okay. Just uh, two, two intense Trey songs that um, I had almost nothing to do with the writing of, apart from maybe naming the main characters. Do you find kind of a follow-up to that? I was just thinking, um, when you're at a show and you hear them play a song that you wrote lyrics to versus a song that you didn't write lyrics to... Do you find like any added pressure listening to a song that you wrote versus like they play a song you had nothing to do with and you can just enjoy it like a fan? Or does that never really cross your mind? That that's sort of a perceptive question because it brings to mind the um, the audience reaction or my perceived audience reaction to songs that I wrote. Like if I feel um, and I've gotten some negative reinforcement from friends and stuff about like certain songs, maybe Maybe some don't like the the words part of backwards down, down the number line and can't wait until they get through to the jam. And I sometimes feel eyes on me, you know, like, oh, here's a song that Tom wrote about his daughter, Pebbles and Marbles or something. You know, does that change the way I enjoy it? No, but I'm definitely, every now and then, I'm sort of wondering, like, um, you know, 
you're standing in the audience next to one of the authors, maybe you want to glance and see how he's enjoying it or, or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I try not to let it affect me. And now it's been 32 years of, right. of doing, dealing with that. But, um, you know, there's some like, uh, even chalk dust where sometimes I feel, I know it's a fan favorite, but I, as it's happening live, I think, you know, had, had I just had a little bit more time with that, I would have massaged those lyrics and taken out some of the extreme wackiness okay. or maybe even stash too. But I mean, I love both, and yet there's it, they're so high school the the you know the lyric writing and the crafting, but still Trey's two probably favorite songs of mine. Chalk Dust is so interesting to me in the sense that you can hear it as a seven minute song, and it sounds like you're listening to a window into you writing in high school, fish in like their uh, um, creation stage, but then now what they've done with it over the last five years. And it's a song that when they play it, they have no idea how long they're going to play it for and how long it's going to go for, or, you know, where it's going to go musically. And right, right. But the but that's the unknown part. But the right. known part is always the lyrics. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, a good friend of mine from high school, when I told him I was doing this, he actually said, find out about Stash. So we're saying Stash is just like high school goofy lyric writing exercise. Um, there's... Yeah, well, okay. there's songs that I write that definitely have um, a purpose in my mind as I write them. And then there's songs that start out just because the words are cool together. Smegma, Doug Mattergram, Fish Market, Stew. Um, <laughs> that just became sort of like wordplay, um, but still fun. And, and like trying to make Trey laugh or trying to make Scott Herman laugh is sort of the, the focus of a lot of uh, my early songwriting, you know, and I think that good mood and the humor uh, pervade still when they play those songs. And, and so there is a place for it. And yet, um, am I as proud of those lyrics as I am, say, of uh, I already mentioned Pebbles and Marbles? Yeah. Not not really. Right. No, because that one, you can tell there's more craft went into it. Taking kind of a broader step back, and we kind of touched on this at the start of the conversation, just you know, really enjoying where Fish is at right now in 2017, 2018. Um, when they reunited, and obviously you guys, you were writing a lot of songs um, at the time. Um, did you ever think that the music or the band could ever get back to a level that they're playing at right now? And kind of a back, you know, side question of that, like, did you ever think that they needed to? Were you just happy to see them back together? So... The 2004 to 2009 hiatus was painful for me, you know, at not having Fish. Right. But at 2004, when Fish ended, I knew that Trey doesn't sit still. Yeah. And always needs lyrics yeah. and always likes my lyrics no matter what project, unless it's uh, Hands on a Hard Body. Okay. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there wasn't space for my lyrics there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so don't do Hands on a Hard Body too, Trey. Um, <laughs> uh, noted. Noted. <laughs> he is a listener. So, <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, you know, it wasn't a tragedy in that respect. Although I did really feel that they had broken up and that fish was gone. Yeah. So yeah, 2009 or even earlier because I knew they were coming back before possibly you guys. Um, 2008, 2007 when we right. were writing um, backwards down the number line and a few of the songs that wound up on Joy. Um, uh, I was just absolutely elated and so excited. Plus, Trey had come out of a sort of a, you know, uh, you know how we have peaks and valleys in our life. Trey had come out of a valley and was, was uh, nearing a peak, too. Right. So the, the combination was perfect. As to Fish being as practiced up as they uh, had been when they retired right. or whatever, that type of thing never really enters into my conscience okay. uh, ever. Okay. And I even need other people to tell me, you know, whether that was uh, their favorite show or not. I kind of have no perception of that either. Right. My favorite shows tend to be the ones that I'm in and the ones I just saw. Okay. okay. <laughs> I like that. So yeah. you're really like present at the show. I'm totally present. Yeah. You're not like analyzing songs. No, 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 no. Um, and not worried about flubs. I feel like the the song goes on, you know, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to hear you say that because um, I've seen this floating around on Twitter that um, uh, 
Trey must feel like Keith Richards is so lucky because he can get on stage and play Jumping Jack Flash every night and people who don't really listen to the Rolling Stones just go crazy. <laughs> and he has to get on stage, he has to play Fluffhead and musicologists have to analyze him. And it's funny that like you who works directly with him on creating this music are just like, it's almost like um, you're not there continuing to work. You're there just taking in the joy. Uh, yeah, well, from Trey's perspective, I mean, lyrically, I've made it difficult for him in a way as well, right? right. That they're not the most... You can't remember them as easily as you can the lyrics to Jumping Jack Flash. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, um, by the same token, there's always a solution, and uh, it's accepted after you turn 50 that you can have you know, a teleprompter. Right. Um, as long as you're not just glued to it. And uh, the few times that Trey's had one, probably most people don't even know because he's very subtle about it, just yeah. needs a, a little reminder here and there, especially for Cavern. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or, or I think Steam as well. Steam. <laughs> Steam is like Steam, there was a, a problem. block of lyrics that yes. you just got to go through. Exactly, like. exactly. So there's always a mouthful there. But uh, way before 50 happened uh, to Trey and, and me, um, he had said uh, something, you know, perceptive. I think this was even in his 30s. Like, I've made it really hard for myself uh, to to grow older with this incredibly complicated music. Totally. So he was aware of it, and yeah. yet it didn't. He didn't shy away from it. Right. He's got a lot to think about. In addition to the lyrics, he's got these complicated songs. He has to basically compose the sets on the fly, and he has to do improvisation. Listen to the other members of the band, and I'll do like a twenty show tour. Where everything is completely different. Whereas Rolling Stones or Rush or what have you gets to perfect the same set night after night after night and play Tom Sawyer over and over again. So if he flubs a few notes in Riva, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it goes to what you were saying um, in the sense that, um, you know, there's so much complication. or He's made it so complicated for himself and the band in and of themselves have made it complicated. You've added that complication by creating all these lyrics that he has to remember. And then oftentimes the parts of the show that everybody remembers, the fans and everything is when the band really simplifies and finds a key and finds a riff that they really connect in. And then there's that big tension and release moment. Yeah. And it almost is like the tension and release of the band in kind of a larger sense. You know, the, the fact that they've created this very difficult parameter for themselves, yeah. but then they just succeed by playing really simple music that, Right. Goes a lot of places. Right. I remember like they didn't want to approach Fluffhead early, you know, in 2009, like, uh, did they? Did they? Open? They opened Fluffhead, right? The Hampton uh, show. Right? Oh, that's right. I remember uh, conversations about it. Like it's too difficult. We're not going to play it unless we practice it incredibly hard. And and yeah, it's it's they made they made their their lives difficult. But you know, practice heals all. Fluffhead divided sky opener at Hampton 09 was oh, okay. a pretty big. Those are two set, pretty big, big sign that songs. To yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, kind of taking a step back from that, you know, in terms of like they're, they're reuniting in 2009, um, from your perspective, did you think that the breakup in 2004 was inevitable? Did you think it was ill-advised for them to continue? Were you expecting it? What were your thoughts on that? Um, I think the way you just said it, ill-advised for them continue was sort of on everybody's, uh, uh, you know, the foremost in everyone who was close to them on their minds. Uh, the 2000 breakup didn't accomplish what it set out to accomplish. Right. And um, they didn't wipe the slate clean, meaning they kept everyone on salary still. So there was always someone looking over uh, Trey's shoulder like, oh, are we starting again? Yeah, you know what I mean? Whereas just wiping the slate completely clean, just saying, hey, dudes, we are really done Go find other jobs. Go away. <laughs> um, <laughs> needed to be done for uh, personal health reasons, for sure. But also, um, you know, the band—they've uh, been—they they needed a break too. Yeah, yeah. It was twenty-one years of essentially straight. Yeah, through. and pressure mounting for various reasons, and and uh, yeah, it was a breath of fresh air that the first hiatus didn't accomplish. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was. So I was in college. I was 19 when they broke up in 2004. And I remember 
I forced my parents to let me go to Coventry because I said that they were like the Beatles and they were breaking up forever. And my mom laughed and said, they'll be back together in five years. <laughs> um, nice. And uh, while, you know, I will always put fish on par with, with the Beatles from a personal standpoint. Me too. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I was very thankful when they decided to come back together. But my mother laughed at me in 2008 and she said, I told you so. But uh, it helped me in the sense that I was only listening to fish from the time I got into them to the time that they broke up. That was my, I had such a hard time putting something on that wasn't a fish show. <laughs> and during that breakup, and I think you were this very similar, Dave, um, I explored so much new music that by the time fish came back together in 2009, the way I listen to music was so different compared to the way it was in 2004. Um, I'm guessing it was similar for you. New music? Yeah, new music. Yeah, kind of. I mean, uh, right in 2000, if you remember the George Clooney movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. Mm. And I'd never been really that into bluegrass, but for whatever reason, it was like this big revelation for me. And I knew that Mike had a bluegrass bent, kind of, and uh, loved it. And I knew that Trey and and Paige, uh, you know, and Fish uh, loved sort of playing along with that sort of fast style as well. And there was like a a non-country coolness that bluegrass had that country music didn't, you know, that I've kind of started listening and was, um, especially like that album, that soundtrack, I think... They went, a band that uh, was created to play the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack, which the album is really great, had Alison Krauss um, and Gillian Welsh on it, at least for two songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, And those two are the ones I listened to over and over again, uh, largely because of the harmonies. And I was just like, wow, this is like Beatles-esque harmony and really good music and really good lyrics. Yeah. Like, what more could I ask for? And so I kind of went deep there, especially into Gillian Welsh. Okay. And immediately found uh, that her, I guess, husband, mm-hmm. David Rawlings. Yes. Mm-hmm. They're married, right? I believe so, yeah. Um, was, like, the best harmonizer, you know, second maybe to, to when Lennon is harmonizing with Paul. Totally. Um, that I'd ever heard and the notes he chose and, and, and then add to that being an incredible acoustic guitar player. And I, I just couldn't get enough. I just started listening to Jillian Welsh. Does he play like an acoustic guitar but kind of sets it flat? Yeah, he found a guitar in a friend's attic. It's a guitar from like 1936. I think it's an Epiphone. But it was all covered in dust. He restored it, but now he flat picks it. Flat, okay. And so it's got a very unique sound that, and it's the only guitar to, you know, it's kind of like Trey's Languedoc. It's the only guitar in existence that sounds really like that and can really only be played by David. There's a, there's a song you guys have to listen to, which um, perfectly exemplifies the harmony aspect of Jillian and, and David Rawlings that... I'd, I'd love for the fans to hear as an example, Absolutely. but also completely nails him as a great guitarist. And it's called, I want to play that old time rock and roll. I want to play that rock and roll. Do you know it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. You know it. Yeah, well, and this particular version comes from the time, the Re- revelator yes. album. I've been a traveling near and far. thing he didn't lay down his whole guitar right <laughs> that so that that's kind of where I was I was also um, a neighbor moved in uh, kind of in the same song vein and these guys all overlap 
like Alison Krauss, as you know, sang on Hoist, yeah. Um, yeah. If I Could, with Trey. She does that harmony. I contend that is still the single best Fish Studio recording. That nice. song. With nice. Alison Krauss and the strings and the harmonies. Beautiful. That's as good as Fish got in the studio. Oh, that's fantastic. I listen to that a lot, so I, uh, yeah. I, I, I can't draw... You know, from my memory, anything that's immediately better. So uh, I'm going to give you that one for now. <laughs> but uh, a neighbor moved into my uh, neighborhood very close to my house, and uh, he he's since left, unfortunately. Really cool guy. Hi, Steve. And he had Steve Earl, one of Steve Earl's guitars. Oh, wow. And um, I looked it up. It wasn't the Duesenberg, which is also a semi-hollow uh, or a hollow body. Um, it was actually a Gretsch. With okay. two F holes in it, it's a certain kind of uh, Gretsch, and he had it, and he uh, Steve Earl had signed it over to him, uh, like hey Steve from Steve uh, Lovey Man or something, because they grew up together. Wow! And uh, this guy was also a good guitar player, but uh, so I started listening to Steve Earl, and uh, Trent, if you're gonna get a Steve Earl album, Transcendental Blues is the one, and that's got two amazing songs, Galway Girl and Steve's Last Ramble. I met a little girl and we stopped to talk Find something I And I asked your friend What's a fella to do? Cause her hair's black and her eyes are blue Had a new ride then I'm a ticket world And a sawtill crumb with a Galway girl sense of theme for these songs, it seems like you're really big on like Americana singer-songwriting with strong vocals, strong choruses, and really good lyrics that often have some metaphors, so I'm just going to take a step back and really recommend you get the latest record from the uh, uh, band called the, the uh, Turnpike Troubadours. Yes. We talked about them on Beyond the Pond before. They're, um, I guess, a country rock band from Oklahoma. They have about five records at this point. The latest record is called A Long Way From Your Heart, and the main singer-songwriter is a guy named Evan Felker. And just his lyrics, he likes exploring different sorts of metaphors. Every song kind of feels like a mini-movie. They use fiddle, there's harmonica, there's acoustic instruments, electric instruments, which is probably one of the best put-together like country songwriting bands I can think of at the moment. Awesome. To the point where I hear some of their songs, my heart wants. They have a song off their self-titled album called "The Bird Hunters," which is just like a full, like movie packed into five minutes. Like I hear it, my heart wants to jump out of my chest, thinking, "God, I gotta see this live. This is so goddamn good." Nice. Terms like troubadours. Yeah. The country was cold with the sun westward sinking. It's good to be back in this place. interesting hearing you talk about what you were listening to during the hiatus because what you went through is exactly what I'm going through right now in a musical standpoint like what you're talking about having true Americana songwriting albums that just sound really good 
in a very general way of saying it, but like you can hear every instrument, all the levels are yeah. right. Yeah. And it sounds like something that's picked up from the 19th century to early 20th century. That's all I want to hear right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's something in a way it was like regressive for me. It was like almost like um, a little bit more simplistic music. Totally. Maybe back to my uh, Beatles. Like, you know, that was my first band. That's my only band. That's like my big, that's my favorite, favorite right. band by far. And I'm like, uh, my daughter's like, I, she just moved out of the house. She's working in New York City. But for a while, she was commuting from New Jersey, uh, from Princeton. So I would have to take her to the train station and pick her up. So that's a that's a sump pump. And so um, she would get tired of the fact that on the serious um, satellite radio, I only had on the Beatles channel. Really? Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like rediscovering, because I never really, I was always like a big fan of, you know, Sergeant Pepper, Rubber Soul, and Forward, you know, Abbey Road, Let It Be, um, White Album. But going back, I always kind of, uh, you know, wrote it off in a way. Totally. But, oh my God, how incredible they were. Even their simple songs always had a very kind of amazingly creative hook that they made sound easy, but no one else was writing that way. It's literally like they pulled those hooks just out of the ether. Yeah. They were always there. Like yeah. every time I hear the Beatles, they sound so incredibly familiar, but I also have no idea how you could write something that simple that's that transcendent and also... I'll, I'll, I'll add a song that you, you might want to throw on, which yeah. exactly exemplifies this. Babies in Black. Oh, yeah. It sounds so simple, but then they go into that amazing hook um, with the real high Paul Harmony. And I just, it's genius. It is absolutely genius. And those chords they're forming are like Mozart in a way to me. I think what I love about hearing that is you, it almost sounds like, so I think Beatles for Sale, I could be wrong, but I think it's 1964, which is right around the time that they first met Bob Dylan and were introduced to marijuana. And clearly, you know, their lyrics then become much more thoughtful. Their music becomes more interesting. Um, but that sounds in some ways like a really sludgy, just rock riff from like 1955, 1956, yeah. mm -hmm. just kind of it could be Buddy Holly. Yeah, exactly. But but better. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> way better. <laughs> I'm actually going through my own huge Beatles rediscovery at this point because I have a daughter who is three years old, and there's a television show on Netflix yes. called It's a cartoon called Beat Bugs. Yes, and really. I need to play this. Yeah. Oh, really? I've never played oh, this. I've, I've, I've told you about Beat Bugs, yeah, man. You probably have, but... Anyway, the whole premise of Beat Bugs, it's just animated bugs in a backyard, but the hook is that each episode contains two Beatles songs. I guess it probably cost them a fortune to get the rights, but I think Paul McCartney was actually like totally into it. So we started watching this show, and it's like a Trojan horse essentially to get your three-year-old really into the Beatles. And the soundtrack is on Spotify. So I certainly didn't know all the lyrics to Ticket to Ride when I was three years old. <laughs> like, she'll be on the subway and start singing Ticket to Ride, and some lady looks at me and says, she's singing what I think she's singing? That's so great. I said, yeah. <laughs> but, and now, from there, we started listening to the Beatles' number one, all of the number one albums. And I finally started to get her into Abbey Road, and she wants to sing Come Together. So I think that's the greatest. Getting to rediscover the Beatles through the eyes of my daughter has been one of the... Octopus's Garden, too, is on yes. Abbey Road. So yes. yes. That's a great kids', kids uh, song. Also, also a song that when you're older suddenly takes on a totally new meaning. I yeah, beautiful. Ringo was so... Like, that is one of the darkest songs I feel like I've heard from them. But it sounds like... It's like happy, Sparkle. Like Sparkle, like yeah. Where, like, when you really hear the lyrics, you're like, oh my goodness, where is he at? It's but, like kind of dirt. I want to be... I want to be... 
under something and not totally. exposed to society anymore. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, part of the thing was getting her to listen to the actual Beatles songs versus the like Beat Bugs versions, but I think we got her around that at this point. <laughs> That's been one of the cooler aspects of fatherhood up to this point has been doing the Beatles with my kid. Yeah, so. I, I did the same thing. I was like gave gave my both my kids a firm grounding in Beatles for sure, and then you know let them branch out. Um, Zeppelin was there too. <laughs> They loved. I mean, the Beatles are the origins, and they, I, I don't feel like yeah. there's been a band that's come along that replaces what you first introduce your kids to. I think it like should be the, the Beatles. It always yeah. has. To <laughs> <be>. <laughs> yep. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. He'd let us in, knows where we've been. In his octopus's garden in the shade I'd ask my friends to come and see Did you ever write lyrics during the hiatus that you hope would eventually end up in a fish song if they had ever decided to get back together? Um, well, that's kind of a good question. There's a bunch of stuff, I guess, on that wound up on Joy that we wrote prior to Fish playing live. But you probably mean more stuff that wasn't written specifically for fish that I had just written that then became a fish song. Right. If that's the category, um, the song stealing time from the faulty plan and also 20 years later, I think preexisted okay. stealing time from the faulty plan, uh, was co-written with Scott Herman. And we wrote that actually a long time ago. And then 20 years later, I wrote as sort of a nostalgic look back, um, during the, I think right in the middle of the hiatus. Okay. And so both of those, I think, I presented to Trey as lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, but then other songs on Joy, like Joy um, and uh, Light, uh, we wrote together, definitely intending for them to be fish songs. Light is such an interesting fish song to me because from a musical standpoint, that song started jamming almost immediately after they came back and... You can point to a number of versions, the Gorge in 2009, the Greek Theater in 2010, that were really benchmarks for them from a musical improvisational standpoint as they came back together. And I got a lot of compliments um, uh, as to the the lyrics as well. Yeah. And those have a little story. Do you want me to talk? Yeah, please. Um, So Trey lived at the time or had an apartment in Saratoga Springs. and this was probably, I want to say, 2006, 2007. Okay. Probably 2007, 2008, more like. And um, I was up there visiting him, and uh, he had been sort of exploring aspects of uh, Buddhism. Okay. Um, and I am pretty a-religious, uh, you know, and it's not sort of my thing, but I do like learning about it. And I was listening to him kind of talk about it and realized also that there's some other spirituality-based books, not necessarily religious, that Trey had been reading recently. And um, I picked up one by Eckhart Tolle called The Power of Now. And Trey, um, you know, reacted positively when I picked it up. He said he's gotten a lot of uh, good advice from that book. And so, um, you know, Trey went off, he had to do something, and I sort of sat with the book for probably two hours and read through it and really sort of immediately thought, this guy is crazy, I, I, don't, I don't get it, mm-hmm. it's gobbledygook. I, don't, I completely didn't uh, form an attachment to any of the, any of the um, concepts. I couldn't figure out how Trey got life advice out of it. But I kind of went back Later, I took the book. Okay. And um, because Trey had said, you know, Trey saying that, he doesn't say that lightly, that he got a lot of advice from. So I made it a point, rather than just spend two hours, like actually try to read it again. And this time, 
Um, I still didn't make a connection for myself in a life changing way, but I made a connection to some of the concepts and I'm all about the concept of now. If you live just in the, in the now, um, you know, you, you agree that there's a past and you agree that there's a future, but you live in the now and it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to attain, but if you can truly do it, there are no problems, right? Right. Because problems involve the future. (laughs) Um, and right now, if you just live in the now and there's ways to do that, and this this is supposedly what the book uh, gets you to strive to do. And I think it's actually pretty difficult, but one of the concepts also was that your mind is separate from you. And so that's when I started saying, I can see the light between me and my mind Mm -hmm. and the light is growing brighter and all that stuff. And so that, song was definitely the lyrics were definitely influenced by Eckhart Tolle Trey and I as um, we were thumbing through it on the spot um, we didn't I didn't have all the words yet but uh, was definitely starting to play guitar and came up with that you know part of those chords and then later I said I think I finished it and and he then finished it by himself okay Um, but yeah beautiful I love that song I can't see the light between different connection to when you hear them now versus other songs that you wrote i mean they're kind of the origins of fish 3.0 and this like very unique point in the band's history yeah just those two um, in particular like light i just think is now part of the fish canon right but but joy and backwards down the number line have significant emotional meaning yeah to me and and to trey and to that time period um, Joy started out as a song about our daughters and wound up being a song about uh, his sister who, who passed away as, as we were creating the song, actually. Um, and uh, then, of course, Backwards Down the Number Line has a, a story that a, a lot of people know. In terms of uh, songs that have some emotional resonance with me, I think certainly Brian as well, just one song we wanted to ask you about was the recent song, Mercury, which I completely love. I think that's one of my favorite Trey and Tom songs of the past 10 years, both in terms of the A minor groove, in terms of the lyrics. And you just wanted to get a little background on that song in particular. I haven't seen it live yet. I'm chasing it. I'm hoping this is the year I happen to get <laughs> uh, get some Mercury. I've been lucky <laughs> to catch two. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, Mercury. Well, thank you for saying that. Mercury is really one of my favorites, too. That one. Um, so we went to uh, Kitty Hawk uh, in 2015 in February, um, the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Yeah. And that's where the Wright brothers, you know, flew their first plane. And so there's some history. We went to the Wright brothers monument. Um, but I was also into that area because of the island Roanoke, which is right there. And that was actually the first American colony. Was that Jamestown? No. no. That's okay. the first successful oh, okay. American colony. Right. The first American colony in 1587 was Roanoke. And uh, just a small boat you know, landed there of maybe, I don't know, possibly 30 people. And it was so hard for them to forge an existence that the governor of Roanoke left uh, you know, intending to bring more people and more supplies. But when he got to England, uh, Spain had attacked England and he couldn't get out Oops. for three years. Wow. Came back in 1590 and then it's uh, stumbled upon one of the biggest mysteries in history of the United States history. Um, oh, by the way, his daughter, he left his daughter and wife, the first European white woman ever to be, or girl ever to be uh, born 
in the United States. My goodness. Um, and I think her name was Pearl. Okay. But anyway, so he was very excited to come back to his colony and found nothing, just ruins, abandoned, and the word Croatoan carved into a tree. That's right. Croatoan was an island down the further down the, the barrier island chain, but it was also um, ominously the name of a not friendly Indian tribe. Okay. And so they thought either they're going to Croatoan or they were attacked by the Croatoan. That's one of the that's one of the those those two of the theories. For whatever reason, they didn't get there, and there was no trace ever found of them. And then the other theory was that the Spanish who were in Florida at the time came up and found an English colony and wiped it out. In uh, none of those, they probably had a sort of bloody end, no matter what what happened to them. Unfortunately, um, but there was always the theory that they sort of assimilated, possibly, into the culture. And so recently, there had been some DNA experiments, um, but they were inconclusive, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, that was in my mind. And like in a science way, I was like, I was excited about the science and history aspect. And so my mind was kind of in a science place. Um, And uh, Mercury to me, you know, apart from being, uh, you know, the messenger god, um, is also, uh, you know, a cool element that's metal, that's liquid at room temperature, and is also a planet that has some amazing features. When people first saw Mercury, the, the astronomers, um, it moves in retrograde and appears to go backward mm-hmm. just based on weird angles. And looking at it um, can, you know, throw, throw people for a loop. And then it has another uh, feature which made it into the song is that it's day is longer than its year. Mm-hmm. Now, that people have challenged me on because if you think about a day as a planet rotating around its axis completely as the day, which is the, th- the actual definition of a day, its day is not longer than a year. Mm-hmm. But if you think of it as a sidereal day, which means sunrise to sunrise. Oh, okay. So what happens, like, because it's its year is kind of short by the time it rotates around to what would have been the day it's moved around the sun so that it's not a sunrise. You know what I mean? It's, it's moving the whole time around the sun. So it takes more than, you know, a normal day to, to achieve a day. That's wild. Yeah. It's moving very fast around the sun in its, in its year. And so therefore the day, I I don't know, it's uh, there's, there's, there's math and there's some thinking involved, but its day is longer than a year if you're talking sidereal day. Okay. That song, I remember the, the first time they played it in Oregon in 2015. I was listening to the stream and I just found it so fascinating. I didn't, when the song first ends and then it comes back in with the Nets Unbreakable, I was like, oh my God, they're debuting another song. Another Later song. I realized it was the same. Right. That last section became of great personal importance to me. That was like a hymn that I sung over and over to myself over the last Don't worry year. about falling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, it just uh, hit on a very, very uh, immediate level. But that song is in such sections that it, what's always gotten me about it is that it harkens back to like songs that Trey was writing um, in the 1980s. Gaiuti or whatever with sections. Very composed. Yeah. But it's much much loose, much more loose than those songs are. It's not as like tightly wound together. Right. Right. So it sounds like modern day fish, but plain early fish. But then these lyrics that to me, those and sense and subtle sounds are on such a high level of there's so much interesting imagery in there. And then there's so much background in terms of the science. Yeah. Yeah. It can do for you in terms of like, you know, the, the, uh, idea of, the power of now, you know, that song to me is about the immediacy of the moment as well. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I wanted to get this, the two, you know, the two scientific aspects of Mercury, uh, and the God aspect and yeah. Trey really, uh, um, you know, Google, but also I, I believe he had a book that he was looking for and he was the one that came out with the vermilion, uh, um, tomb of the red queen. Yeah. The, right. the tomb of the red queen. Um, I didn't know that part of the the, the legend or the the uh, about the Mercury God. I didn't know that much about that. But um, vermilion is also ma- made from the element Mercury as oh, well, and it's like a red sort of 
substance, but I guess, you know, dangerous to work with. Did you, I seem to remember a picture from that session. Um, did you get some of the lyrics from the back of a t-shirt? Oh, (laughs) so, um, uh, days that are met with loneliness or aid and abet this loneliness. Yeah, Yeah. So, um, no. So that shirt had a completely different back to it. Okay. And, uh, I took a picture of Trey, uh, composing possibly Mercury. Right. And when I told my friend, who's a Photoshop guy, about oh, he it, added it, he added it <laughs> to confuse people. Because I remember when that came out after the song came out, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like they, you guys must have just, you know, it looked like a type of shirt that you would just buy in a. We have them in Annapolis, where it's just like a weird catchphrase. A t-shirt store, yeah, a t-shirt shop. That one wouldn't sell very well, would it? <laughs> <laughs> Days that are right. like, I was like, "You guys found a shirt down in you know the Outer Banks, yeah. and you just started writing." And but no, it's actually, funny. I would buy that shirt. Yeah, I love that that line. <laughs> To me, just a click for things that I met with loneliness. Aid and I met this loneliness. The days that I met with loneliness. Aid and I met this loneliness. The days that I met with loneliness. Aid and I met this loneliness. The days that I met with loneliness. Aid and I met this loneliness. Tonight's the night. The wheels are turning. Subway kept going Nothing to lose When the mercury's flowing The days that I met with loneliness Aid and I bet this loneliness The days that I met with loneliness Aid and I bet this loneliness The days that I met with loneliness Aid and I bet this loneliness The days that I met with Recently saw one at the Baker's Dozen where Yeah they, Um if there's any two songs I never thought would be paired together, it would be that and Hot Chocolates, You Sexy Thing. And <laughs> when they somehow found that, it, it was just like, you know, the, the moment where like everyone suddenly picks up all the glow sticks that have already been thrown and throws <laughs> them again and feels like, you know, it's the latter half of the second set. Everyone's a little bit exhausted, but like, oh my God, they're doing it again. And that was great. Was that song recorded for Big Boat and just didn't make it? Right. And did you see the... Was it the Bob Ezrin Mercury removal? Was that wasn't that? Yes, that something was in, in the uh, playbill for ha- Halloween. For Halloween twenty six. Yeah. Oh right, right. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that one was going to, and that is Bob Ezrin, the picture of him. Right. Was, okay. Um, I, yeah, I think so. I think that was definitely a contender, and um, it was one of those equity uh, feelings that the band should equally kind of contribute. To that album at that point in time, it made sense not to have you know that would have thrown the balance way in Trey's favor, right? And they wanted to be sort of equally represented as songwriters on that album. I, I, you know, that said, I, I don't get it. I think it should, still should have gone on. Just, just added on. What's the problem? But, but they had a, they figured that out, and uh, that's the decision. Hey, Fish, if you're listening. Great record store, 2018 release, Mercury. Put it out there. <laughs> yeah, just a vinyl 12 inch of, vinyl 12 uh, of inch. Mer- Mercury. We'd love it. Late April 2018, I'll be there online. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. All right. I'll see that that happens. But the net's unbreakable, so don't worry about falling. The voice that you ignore might be your future calling. Alone we're tossed about like a bottle in the sea But together we ascend and only then escape this gravity The net's unbreakable And on that note, we're going to conclude part one of this conversation with Tom Marshall Come back with us for next week, we will have part two in which we will uh, go deeper into Tom's musical background, um, also discuss some of our musical backgrounds, and also uh, talk about some things involving uh, some fish songs and some of the lyrics that you might not have been aware of. So, on that note, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. Tom Marshall here. And come back next week for part two of the Tom Marshall interview.